Hello, my name is Hansen Kang and welcome to this podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund. If you're feeling short of a little cash, here are a few ideas to earn a bit extra. You could rent out your forehead as advertising space worth over $700 or service a human guinea pig in a drug safety trial you could get paid over $7,000 for that one or what about fighting in Somalia or Afghanistan for a private military company that could earn you $1,000 a day there are some things money can't buy but these days not many so says Harvard professor Michael Sandel in his recently published book What Money Can't Buy The Moral Limits of Markets Sandel has achieved something near rock star status for an academic his online lectures regularly harness more than 3 million views and that's just per episode Sandel says the market has intruded into previously unimaginable aspects of our lives. We've now moved from a market economy to a market society. He explained the difference to our reporter, Rebecca Kaufman. We've slipped in the U.S., but also I think many economies around the world have slipped from having market economies to becoming market societies. A market economy is a tool a valuable and effective tool for organizing productive activity, and it's brought affluence to many countries around the world. But a market society is a place where everything is up for sale, and it's a place where markets and market values reach into spheres of life beyond material goods, spheres of life traditionally governed by non-market values from education, to health, to personal relations, family relations, civic life, national security. Markets and market values increasingly govern all of these things. And I'm suggesting we need to think hard about where markets serve the public good and where they don't belong. What are some examples of things that now have an economic value that did not just a few decades ago? Take education. In some places in the U.S., School districts are trying to improve and motivate academic performance by offering cash incentives to students for good grades or high test scores or to read books. In one place, they offer $2 to young children for each book they read. Now, the aim is admirable to motivate the students. There's a risk, though, that a cash incentive can crowd out the attitudes that ultimately education tries to inculcate, or should, the love of learning for its own sake. I think what's changed is over the past three decades, we've widely accepted the assumption that markets are the primary instruments for achieving the public good. In some ways, it goes back to the early 80s with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, but it really continued this assumption in the years following. And after the Cold War, I think there was a kind of market triumphalism that set in in many places, a sense that we, capitalist societies, had prevailed. But that assumed that faith, that capitalism is one thing, and that markets are appropriate for every sphere of life. Capitalism comes in many different varieties, and it doesn't require that we transform our societies into places where everything is up for sale. One example that you use in the book is the simple idea of of a queue, waiting in line, and how that's even changed. 
The basic principle of the queue is first come, first served. It's a democratic principle. We observe it at amusement parks, for example. There are often long lines for popular rides. But recently, even in amusement parks, you can buy a more expensive ticket and go right to the head of the line in airports. There are now often long lines at the security checkpoints. But you can buy a more expensive ticket or simply pay directly for, to the airline for the privilege of going to the head of the line. Now, airports and amusement parks, these are not the most grievous examples of the, the moral corrosive way that markets can operate, but they are signs of the time that more and more the affluent are able, in effect, to buy their way to the head of the line. We see this down the street here in D.C. where people wait in line to get into congressional hearings. How does this, in your view, corrupt the process? One of the most striking examples I ran across when I was assembling material for this book was the line-standing industry in Washington, D.C. I didn't know it existed before. There are a limited number of seats in congressional hearings or in the Supreme Court when there's an important oral argument. Lots of people want to attend, including lobbyists for the congressional hearings, but the lobbyists don't want to stand in line, uh, sometimes in the cold or in the rain, for 24 hours or 72 hours. So they hire line-standing companies who in turn hire homeless people and others willing to wait for an hourly pay. And then the lobbyists take their place just before the hearing begins. This is another example of buying your way to the head of the line. But doesn't it really put representative government in a way, or access to it, up for sale? I think it raises a serious question. How do economists typically address these moral questions? Most economists claim not to traffic in morality. Not all economists, but many say that economics is a value-neutral science. It tells us what outcomes are economically efficient, resulting from fair trades among consenting adults. That's the basic definition of economic efficiency. But what this misses, especially when economics reaches beyond the sphere of material goods, what this misses is the, the way in which markets don't leave the goods they exchange unchanged or untouched. Markets touch and taint, sometimes, the goods they exchange. Test the value-neutral idea of economic efficiency by thinking about voting. Why should we not have a free market in votes? A lot of people don't much care about the outcome of an election. Other people do. According to standard economic logic, the efficient outcome would be to allow a free market in votes. What? But we don't allow that. Why not? It's because we consider that the vote, a vote is not a piece of private property. It's a civic duty, a public responsibility, a kind of office. So because of the moral meaning of a vote and the civic meaning of a vote, we don't go for the most economically efficient outcome, which would be to allow a market in them. And we need to ask that same question about other moral and civic goods that uh, markets may taint or corrode if, if market values intrude, driving out the higher meaning of the good. In a capitalist free market society, is the trend that you describe in your book simply inevitable? 
I don't think it's inevitable that market economies devolve into market societies where everything is up for sale. There may be a tendency in that direction, but whether that tendency is played out in any society really depends on how vigorous and robust is the public debate about how we should use markets, about where markets serve the public good and where they don't belong. So what we really need for capitalism to flourish, we have to have a public debate about how to keep markets in their place. Not to get rid of markets, which are very valuable and important, but how to keep them in their place so that other social institutions, from family life to health to education to civic life, can flourish according to values and virtues and attitudes and norms that markets may not honor and that money cannot buy. And that was Harvard Professor Michael Sandel in conversation with reporter Rebecca Kaufman. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more on www.imf.org forward slash podcasts. <laughs>